Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Louis Friedberg. And I'm Zadie Stavely, filling in for John Fensterwald, who's on vacation. Welcome, Zadie. Thank you, Louis. For some of you who've been following EdSource, Zadie is our early ed reporter and wearing a different hat this week. The big news this week on the K-12 education front was that Governor Gavin Newsom gave his State of the State speech, and in it he named Linda Darling-Hammond as his choice for the next president of the State Board of Education. Things are heating up on the possibility of a teacher strike in Oakland, and we're also going to talk about an unusual approach to teaching immigrant students also in Oakland. I also managed to grab John Fensterwald before he left town to talk about California's list of 781 lowest performing schools that the state was required to issue under the federal Every Student Succeeds Act. But first, let's get back to Governor Gavin Newsom talking about education during his State of the State speech. In fact, he's had opportunities to hold forth on various issues an unusual number of times for a governor. He first had his inaugural speech, then he issued his state budget, and then he also gave the State of the State speech. He actually didn't say that much about education. He spoke much more about education, which is a major priority for the governor in his earlier speeches. But let's hear some of what he had to say in the speech. I want to turn briefly to education. The teacher strike in LA is over, but the need to confront its underlying causes obviously has only just begun. Understaffed schools, overcrowded classrooms, pension pressures, the achievement gap, growth of charter schools, these stressors are showing up all over the state. Right here in Sacramento, in Fresno, in Oakland. Districts across the state are are challenged to balance budgets even in this strong economy. And at a time we're spending more on schools than we have ever before. You know, seven years ago we invested $47.3 billion in our schools. Next year with your support, will invest over $80 billion. By the way, that includes $576 million for special education. We're still 41st in the nation in per-pupil funding. Something needs to change. It's long overdue that we have that honest conversation about how we fund our schools, not only at the state level, but the local level. At the same time, though, let's remember that the measure of a school system's excellence is more than the sum of its budgets. We need clear and achievable standards of transparency, more information sharing, and accountability for all public schools, traditional and charter schools. We also need a new president for the State Board of Education to work with our superintendent, Tony Thurman. That can help lift up our students. And my pick for that position is nationally recognized expert Linda Darling-Hammond. So that was Governor Newsom in his State of the State speech. So, Lewis, let's talk about Linda Darling-Hammond's appointment. What do you think of this news? Well, actually, it was a a brilliant selection because I can't really think of anyone who would be better suited for that position. She's definitely one of the most prominent education researchers, certainly in California, but also nationally known. She was, in, in fact, in line to be Secretary of Education during the Obama administration. She led President Obama's education transition team, but President Obama, for some reason, decided to choose Arne Duncan, 
who was the superintendent of the Chicago Public Schools. I think they used to play basketball together, so they, they bonded there. So Linda is a Stanford professor, or actually she stepped down a few years ago. She's a professor emeritus. She started a research and policy institute, the Learning Policy Institute in Palo Alto. She's also been chair of the California Commission on Teacher Credentialing. So she knows California education inside out, and really, she would be the logical person to succeed Michael Kirst. So, Lewis, what does this mean for education? What can we expect from Linda? Hard to know. I mean, Linda hasn't been saying that much since she was appointed by the governor. I should mention that she still has to be selected chair by the rest of the board. She's just one of 11 members, but I don't think there's any doubt that the rest of the board would welcome her with open arms. I think one of the very strong messages that the governor is sending with her appointment is continuity with the reforms that Governor Brown put in place and that Mike Kirst helped shape. Mike Kirst was also a Stanford professor like Linda Darling-Hammond. They've known each other for decades. They live very near each other, right, to joining the Stanford campus. In fact, they often take walks together and discuss education policy. And I'd also say that Linda has been one of the most, how shall I say, enthusiastic proponents of these reforms, this new support paradigm that Governor Brown has put into place. So that's not to say she's going to rubber stamp everything, but I think she believes very strongly that reforms take many years. In fact, I did talk with her just before she was named to the position, and she's saying, you know, in, in states and countries that have had the most success, these reforms sometimes take 14 to 20 years to really have an effect. So we have a few years to go still on those reforms. Is there anything that kind of sets her apart from Michael Kirst? She she ran a teacher preparation program at Stanford, right? Well, she's been very involved in teaching and learning. And I think that is a difference and a strength that she brings to the board. Mike Kirst, nationally known, he's very a kind of a policy kind of guy. Um, how do this, the governance structures work? And he brought that perspective to the board. I think Linda is going to bring her decades of experience and insights uh, into teaching and learning to the board. And I think that will make a difference in helping the board focus on that piece of the education puzzle, which, of course, is the key, is the key piece. Absolutely. What, ha what happens in the classroom. So when's Linda's first meeting? Well, the board meets every two months. They had a meeting in January, so the meeting will be in March, uh, the first or second week of March. On another note, you talked with John Fensterwald before he left about how California released the names of the nearly 800 schools that it considers the lowest performing schools measured by a series of indicators on the California school dashboard, right? That's correct. And those are the schools that the state was required to identify under the federal Every Student Succeeds Act. There had been a lot of discussion back and forth for actually a couple of years about how California would identify those schools. So they finally done it, but it was actually a very kind of soft release. It was released without a lot of fanfare. And I asked John why he thinks there was this soft release. Well, it was a release, so it wasn't uh, an initial release. This is a release of the 781 schools, but it does send a completely different message, as you just indicated. Under the old system, parents would get a letter in the mail, and it would say your school is on the school improvement list, and you can transfer your child to a different school, and 
Here are the various sanctions the school will face. This is very different. It's a different law. Every Student Succeeds Act eliminated much of that, and the state's interpretation for enforcing the new law is very different. It says we want this to become not a badge of shame or a stigma, but an invitation to the community and an invitation to the district to work with the schools. Really, the message is rally around your school and start fixing it. We're not going to impose a sanction next year and close it or turn it into a charter school. We want you to improve, and we can talk about how much monitoring there will be. But it's a very different way of going about business that California State Board of Education chose in sending its plan to the federal government. I did read in your article, John, that each school would get about $150,000 in extra money from federal Title I funds to at least try to start turning things around? Is is that the case? That's $150,000 a year. It actually goes to the district. So it's not as if it goes straight to the principal and the principal can use it as he or she wants. It's a, a negotiated process and uh, it remains to be seen how it will be spent. But that alone is not going to do a lot because, frankly, it's not that much money. But the most important thing now is what are these schools going to do and what kind of assistance will they be getting from the state? I mean, 781 schools, that, that's a lot of schools. So uh, what, what's kind of next here for these schools? Yes. Let me say 300 of those schools are high schools whose graduation rate was under two-thirds. And that's the other part of the law besides the 5% lowest performing. It's all those schools whose graduation rate was very low. Just to clarify, okay, so we've identified now the bottom 5% of schools that are performing poorly on these various indicators that are now on the California School Dashboard. But does that mean that the other 95% are doing okay, that we don't have to worry about them? Well, that's a great point. There are schools that need improvement in a lot of different areas. There are schools with very large achievement gaps. There are schools which aren't all red, perhaps. Maybe their test scores are red, but suspension rates aren't. And so it's sort of arbitrary, even at 7%, what are your low-performing schools? So the idea is by working with districts, they will sort of take a, a, a larger analysis of what's going on in our, in our district and apply the lessons and try to experiment and improve to all schools with a focus on these lowest-performing schools. So that's the point that the state is making is it's arbitrary to take 5 or 7%. Okay, John, I'm going to give you your assignment henceforth is to track these 781 schools. I'm sure you'll be able to manage that. Uh, with your help, Lewis, with your help. Okay. Well, thank you, John, for your reporting. Really appreciate it. I'm glad you asked. It's a very different approach that the state is taking, and no one knows yet whether it will work. That was John Fensterwald. Zadie, now let's turn to you. Things continue to heat up on the Oakland teacher strike front, and you're a parent, actually, in the Oakland school, so you have a ringside seat. So, uh, yeah, where do we stand right now? Well, teachers could strike as early as next week. The fact-finding report is coming out today, which means that they could strike as early as sometime next week, and they're getting a lot of support from other teachers around the state. The California Teachers Association called for a day of action on Friday, and teachers in Districts all across the state wore red T-shirts in solidarity with the Oakland teachers and raised some of the same issues that the Oakland teachers are raising, you know, pushing for smaller class sizes, more nurses, librarians, counselors, uh, psychologists, safer schools, and stronger regulation of charter schools. And uh, just to clarify, there's a chance, and I'm hoping people are working towards this, that they will avert the strike. There is a chance. 
I have to say that as a parent in the Oakland schools, it definitely looks like a strike is imminent. Okay, well, we will know very soon as to what's happening on that front. But uh, speaking of Oakland teachers, you've also been covering some interesting programs and some interesting work happening in Oakland around uh, immigrant students. Uh, one of the other things that happened, as I'm sure most of you listening know, this week President Trump declared a national emergency, mainly centered on or provoked by immigrant families who he says are trying to invade the United States. And you've been reporting on what schools and communities are doing to ensure that immigrant kids who arrive here with their parents or as unaccompanied minors succeed. That's right, Lewis. I've been working on this project with the support of a reporting fellowship from the Education Writers Association. And what I was looking into is what happened to all the teenagers who have come to the U.S. over the past five years fleeing their home countries in Central America. Hundreds of thousands of kids and teens have come here. Um, many of them have come alone. Um, others have come with their parents. And it turns out they face a number of challenges to finish high school. They often have to work to pay for rent while they're in school. They're survivors of trauma. Um, in many cases, they've missed a lot of school in their home countries. But the other thing is that they these kids come with a huge asset, which is they speak other languages and they could become bilingual or trilingual if they learn English and keep their home language. Many of these students speak indigenous languages in addition to Spanish. In Oakland, a lot of the students from Guatemala speak MOM, which is a Mayan language. And Oakland is one of the school districts in California with the largest numbers of students from Central America, recent immigrants. I interviewed teachers and counselors who work with newcomers here, and I found this one teacher, Acacia Woods-Chan, at Castlemont High School, and she had an interesting project that she did with her students. And Zadie, you did a piece for Public Radio International's The World on this program, and uh, we thought we would just share it with our listeners to the podcast. We will do an activity. In her ethnic studies class at Castlemont High School in Oakland, California, Acacia Woods-Chan teaches students who have only been in the U.S. for a little while, a few months or a year. Some of them are from Yemen. Many come from countries in Central America, Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. At home, they speak Spanish, Arabic, and Mam, a Mayan language from Guatemala. Last year, Woods-Chan noticed something disturbing. A number of the Spanish-speaking students primarily would be making fun of the Mam language and be making fun of the Arabic language. Woods Chan believes her students' fluency in another language is an asset, something that could even help them get a better job after high school or college. Also, teaching about identity for her is personal. She's African-American and Chinese-American. Her mother, who was born in the U.S. but spoke Cantonese at home, told her that when she was in kindergarten and still learning English, her teacher mocked her in front of the class. The little girl had a stomachache, but she didn't know the word for it. So she raised her hand... And so she was like, I have a stomach. And she's like doubled over in pain. Her face is wrinkled and wrenched and just looking wretched. And the teacher's like, yes, of course you have a stomach. That interaction was scarring for her mom. Woods Chan keeps it close to her heart. She wants to be the opposite kind of teacher, one who would make an effort to understand. So when she saw her students making fun of each other's languages, she started asking them to take turns teaching a little bit of their home language each day. Students taught their peers how to count from 1 to 10, how to introduce themselves, and how to say basic phrases. In English, what is your name? En español, ¿cómo te llamas? Tu mam, tit bi. Bil arabiya, ma huwa ismo? 
Then they recorded themselves saying those phrases in short video clips, like this one, where the kids share how to say cool. In español, chido, chido. En mam, mahorst, mahorst. En Arabic, gamil, gamil. Woodchan says in her classroom, it made a huge difference. Seeing words in their own languages written on the whiteboard and spoken in the video clips helped students with confidence. And then some of my other students that were not in my advisory would come in and be like, hey, that's mom. I speak mom. That's mom. Woodchan is not alone in her conviction. Displaying home languages in the classroom and using the languages in lessons is highlighted as a best practice for newcomer students by researchers at the City University of New York. They say treating the students as experts in their home languages can help them succeed. Fifteen-year-old Will Fido from Guatemala says the project made him happy because everyone wanted to learn mom. He says he also learned a little bit of Arabic, how his friends told him to say hi. Will Fido now wants to be an interpreter. From the beginning of doing mom to the end of the year, you could see a huge shift in the way that not only the mom-speaking students regarded the importance of learning mom and of just having it visible, but then in the way that the other students received it as well. 17-year-old Orlando from El Salvador says he never knew Arabic or mom even existed before he came to the U.S. and heard his classmates talk. Orlando says he had no idea what they were saying. He enjoyed learning a bit of the other languages, and he thinks it would be good for all classes to teach a little of home languages. When students first get here, he says, they think, no one talks like me. I'm the only one, and they feel alone. This way, they won't feel so bad. Woodschan hopes her school will use the videos as part of an orientation for students and families to help build a sense of respect and understanding among all students, newcomer and U.S.-born alike. That was a terrific piece, Eddie. Thanks for doing it. Thanks, Lewis. Really a reminder of the work that teachers are doing in Oakland and other schools when we're in this kind of strike situation. That's kind of the focus of teachers and activists, but really they are teachers first. And this activism part is something I don't think they signed up for when they became teachers. And that just about wraps it up for this week's podcast. Thanks to our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Our producers are Kobe McDonald and Shuka Kalatari. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra. We also have music from Ed Source's Justin Allen. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm Zadie Stavely. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.